friends, I hope you have your Bible with you. If not, there's one in the pew back in front of you, or you can uh, download one on your electronic device if you haven't already. But your Bible is the written revelation of the redemptive relationship of God with humanity. Try to say that five times real fast, right? The written revelation. So it's written down so we can read it. But it's a revelation. It's God revealing himself, the sovereign God of the whole universe, revealing himself to us. But it's not just any book of stories or good ideas. It is a book about the redemptive relationship between God and humanity. That God seeks to redeem humanity to himself, to pay the price, the penalty for our sins, to put us back in right relationship with him. And it's about a relationship. The God of the whole universe loves you, and He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for you in order that you might have a personal relationship with Him, and that's what the Bible is about. Yeah, there's a lot of stories in there, and some of them make you go, okay, that's a little interesting because their cultures are not our cultures and their habits and customs, but they're here in the Bible. And like I said earlier, we have these things in the Bible because God knows that they're going to speak to a situation in our life directly or indirectly. And that everything in the Bible has something it can teach us in order to help us be more Christ-like. And the Bible, as you might guess, even addresses a topic like how to relate to pastors. It's here because God knew that a church would need it. Amen? I mean, you got this Yehu up here, and you got Pastor David down there as your two pastors on staff right now. But God knew that somewhere along the way, you all would need some instructions about how to handle us Yehus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Uh, well, I'll, sp- I'll call myself the Yehu. David's not so Yehuish. But we continue our sermon series from 1 Timothy, My True Child, as Paul writes his son in the ministry, Timothy, who he has left as a pastor of the church at Ephesus, a church that had some difficulties, and those are addressed through the book of 1 Timothy, and you also read those in the book of Ephesians. But here are instructions mainly to the church, with one quick aside specific to Timothy, where he tells the church... Here's how you should relate to pastors. Now, in this passage of Scripture, remember, most of your translations are going to use the word elders. But remember, elders are pastors. And that not every elder is a pastor, but all pastors are elders. That's your little syllogism there. But elders are pastors, and we find that from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. You can write that down on your outline, and you'll see the word for elder. You'll see the word, uh, all three words, overseer and uh, pastor, used interchangeably there. So I'll simply use the word pastor, even though the passage of Scripture uses the word elders. We've got our Scripture memory verse of the month, however, that we need to uh, read um, and remind ourselves of, and it comes from our text from next week, but let's say that together. 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good faith, fight of the faith, and remember with your confession of faith i.e. your calling, who God called you to be, as your basis for that fight. 
He reminds that pastors should teach, train, model, mentor, encourage, challenge as individuals with the church. So if you've got your copy of God's Word and you're able to stand with me, would you do so as we turn to our key text, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to the end of the chapter in verse 25. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Pray with me. God, our Father, as we open your word again, we come to a passage of Scripture that we kind of go, meh, because it doesn't seem like it's anyhow uh, has pertinence to us, but it does, because you've organized us together as a church, and you've given that church leaders as pastors. And in this passage of Scripture, complementing so many others that you've recorded, you tell us as a church and as pastors how to relate to one another. So, Father, I pray that our ears would be attentive and our hearts would be open, but that our minds as well would be engaged as we study this Scripture. We thank you for covering everything we need to know about life and Scripture, and we pray now that we learn from you by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So the first point on our outline this morning is a question, and that question is, how should we provide for pastors? How should we provide for pastors? This passage of Scripture addresses that for us in verse 17. It says, the elders, so pastors who direct the affairs of the church, are worthy, or direct the affairs of the church well, excuse me, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. They direct the affairs of the church well. So we have to note that word, that their character and their work merit their compensation. It should be obvious to you, and uh, whether you're thinking about me or any other pastor you know, that pastors are gifted in different ways, and pastors have different abilities as well, and not every pastor is suited to every church or situation. And so it may be that you have a man with good character who's maybe just not the right fit. And he's not able to direct the affairs of that church well. But it tells us that those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor. In other words, to be ample or generous in your support of the pastor and his family, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. 
They labor in the word and in doctrine, the King James Version says. I like that. And notice the analogies there in verse 18. For Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out grain. If God gives ample provision for oxen treading out grain, surely a pastor should be equally cared for. And that's quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4, but it's also cited in 1 Corinthians 9.9 as Paul is telling that church, here's how to treat your pastor. And then notice the next part of that one. The worker deserves his wages. If you've got a red letter edition of the Bible, you might have that in red letters because Jesus himself quoted that in Luke 10.7. The laborer is worthy of his reward. And so what we learn from this two verses of Scripture is that we should provide for our pastors. And that's your answer to your questions. Provide for their living. And based on the church and based on its ability, based uh, of the tithes and offerings of its members, those things are relative to the situation. But that's the responsibility of the church to provide for their pastors, especially those who are involved in preaching and teaching and do their work well. So let's look at your second question. Your second question is, what about our judgment of pastors? Now, this one gets a little more difficult, I've got to tell you. Uh, Judging them and their abilities in their work is implied through that idea of those who do their work well in verse 17. But let's pay attention to what Scripture has to tell us here in verse 19 and 20. It says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder, a pastor, unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. The Bible guards as of utmost importance to protect the innocence of men from false accusation. I shouldn't say just men, women as well. The Bible guards that. That we should protect the innocents from accusation. Now this is based on Deuteronomy 9.15. And so too in the church should we protect the innocent from accusation. Scripture tells us how we are to relate to one another. In Matthew chapter 18 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. But it tells us here that especially when a pastor is the one accused or implicated that the pastor must be protected against malicious intent. Now, this is one of these passages of Scripture that you guys could look at me and say, well, pastor, it's pretty self-serving for you to preach this way, right? Well, it's not. This is the reason we preach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so that we cover everything. So that we're not cherry picking out scriptures. Now there is a place for topical preaching. There's a place for preaching about special topics on special days. Mother's Day or Father's Day. Christmas, Thanksgiving. But what we try to do at Southview is go word by word through scripture. Through an entire book or following a certain idea or doctrine. In order that we get a full understanding. And in order that we cover things that we need to know. That otherwise we might not know. Because, you know, a pastor's just not going to pick out this passage of Scripture to preach, is he? Hey, you got to take care of me and you can't talk bad about me or things like that. But when it's in what we're preaching, instructions for how the church ought to behave, we're going to preach it and we're going to preach it unapologetically. 
But notice what it says. Not to entertain an accusation against elders unless they're brought by more than two or three witnesses. Unfortunately, even in church, sometimes people say things they shouldn't say. And sometimes people's intent is not righteous or holy. And they may actually have evil and destruction in their heart when it comes to dealing with other church members, leaders in the church, even pastors. Let's take just a quick aside here to talk about the idea of gossip, however. Because so many times what happens is somebody sees something, feels something, or perceives something, and rather than talking to the potential offending source, they talk to someone else. That's gossip. We know what gossip is, but just in case we're not clear, let me make some definition or explanation for you. It's speaking about someone in a way that defames or dishonors or otherwise hurts their character. It's sometimes it's subtle. It might be grumbling about someone. Other times it's loud. It's ranting about them. Further, the content of what's said sometimes is true. And other times, it's not. Either way, the person hearing does not need to know the information because they don't benefit from it. It causes nothing but disunion and disunity and discord. And anytime you got that many disses in a sermon, it's not good. And most of the time, it's not actionable. They're not going to go and help that person. Instead, they're just going to tuck away that information for their future selfish, potentially sinful use. Gossip and its cousins, slander, divisive speech, deceitful speech, are roundly rebuked in Scripture. Scripture says we shouldn't let any unwholesome word come out of our mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. That's Ephesians 4.29 written to the same church that 1 Timothy is written to here. Think about, and you can just write down some references. Psalm 101, verse 5. Psalm 101, verse 5. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. That's Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Proverbs eleven thirteen, eleven thirteen. Proverbs 20, verse 19. 20, 19. And Titus 3, 2. These are just a few references for us. So how do we stop gossip? The first thing you do to stop gossip is you refuse it. In other words, you don't tolerate it. You don't listen to it. Here's a clever quip for you. Gossip dies when it hits a wise person's ears. Gossip dies when it hits a wise person's ears. So refuse it is the first thing you do. The second thing you might do about gossip is rebuke it. Instead of being passive because we don't want to argue with somebody or make them uh, feel bad, uh, we should not only be vigilant, but we need to be um, gracious in rebuking somebody and saying, you know, that sounds like gossip, and I don't need to hear that. And I'm not sure that that's helpful for you or for me. Rebuke it is the second thing we can do to stop gossip. And the third thing is redirect it. Redirect it. We always need to turn anything like that to Jesus in prayer. And we need to say, okay, 
Jesus, something's going on here that isn't right, and it may be between these people, it may be some other thing, but we need your help to keep the unity, to keep the peace, to get your wisdom in order to help this situation. But the second way to uh, redirect it is turn that person back to the one that they're offended by or has sinned against them or alleged, because maybe it's not true. And kindly remind them that that's not helpful for me to hear, but that you need to go back and speak to that person. That's assuming they're talking about someone that directly offended them. Think about it when they're talking about two people they have nothing to do with, with an instance they have nothing to do with. That's even further down the road of gossip. But we refuse it, we rebuke it, we redirect it. So that's just an aside on gossip based on where we're at as a church right now and based on what our scripture says um, at the moment. But let's come back to our scripture. Verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. When we're faced with a potentially sinful situation involving a pastor, we need to take it seriously. But we also need to make sure we follow what Scripture says. Friends, I have to confess to you that as a pastor now for 20 plus years, um, I've talked to my pastor buddies and maybe it's a call they make to me and they say, can you pray for me? Can you give me some advice? Or maybe it's a discussion we have when it's just us pastors sitting around the table together and sorting things out. But of every pastor I know that I've talked to about this subject, the subject of do pastors have moral failures? Do pastors sin against their church or church members? Those broad types of subjects. Every one of us know at least one other pastor we've served with or one other guy we went to seminary with or went to college with or was in the church down the road. So the fact that these instructions are in Scripture knew the fact that pastors are sinners too. Can I get an amen? And that you as a church needed to help hold pastors accountable for our behavior. But you need to do it in an orderly way, in a respectful way. And that's why God gives these instructions. Because pastors fail too. So we're instructed of how to judge pastors. That judgment is going to be needed. Look at verse 20. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. This may not be the case with other types of sin. Let's say you told a lie and you confessed it to me. I'm not going to make you stand up here and confess it to the church, right? But look at what it says for pastors. That if a pastor has sinned because his sin affects the entire congregation... He should be rebuked by other leaders in the congregation publicly. Again, it reminds us that the position of pastors, although pastors are believers in Jesus too, that position is a position that is held to special accountability and special judgment. So friends, we must judge our pastors, but we must be loving, careful, and gracious and follow Scripture in the way we do it. So, Your answer to that question is that we should carefully hear, yet sternly respond. If an accusation is found out to be true, the reaction of the church should be serious and stern in the manner in which a church deals with 
a pastor. Let's move to your third question this morning. Why should we be cautious with pastors? Verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God's at God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So anytime Paul uses this phrase, this should get our attention, right? He's saying, all right, everything else I said is important, but this is really important. Don't miss this, Timothy. If you're falling asleep reading a minute ago, you need to perk up and pay attention. And then what does he say? To keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. What instructions? The instructions he just gave them. The instructions of how to take care of pastors, the instructions of how to make judgment of pastors, take care in the way you do this, Paul says. He's warning them that this is serious business. And then he says, and do nothing out of favoritism. Because pastors are generally nice guys, and because Maybe they mean something to us because of our relationship with them and they've loved us well and served us well. We might be prejudiced towards them or partial towards them. But Paul warns Timothy to tell the church at Ephesus and God by His Spirit giving this word to us tells us not to be mean to pastors and judging them, but not to show partiality. Not to show favoritism because it's serious business when a pastor is accused of sin, particularly if he has sinned. Look at the next part. The next part's a bit of a pivot because 21 connects us back to verses 19 and 20. But verse 22 warns us of something. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands and not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. That phrase, and not share in the sins of others, is saying, if you have ordained a pastor too soon, and then he falls into sin, you, as the ones who have ordained him, are participating in that sin. And so that last phrase, and keep yourself pure, is saying, don't do that, lest you're entering into his sin. Years ago, uh, in my church in Texas, we had a sister church down the road that had almost closed. And this very energetic 70-something-year-old pastor went to try to help him out. And Brother Joe was his name. And Brother Joe called us for when uh, uh, some uh, deacons from a sister church and uh, some deacons from my church and me as another pastor to come to this church on a Sunday evening for a deacon ordination service. All the deacons of this little church had left as it had almost closed its doors. And so we went with some enthusiasm. We're going to get to ordain a deacon that's going to stand alongside this enthusiastic 70-year-old pastor. And we're going to see this church grow up again, right? Well, it quickly became evident that this candidate for deacon was not ready. He couldn't uh, tell you if he was saved. He couldn't tell you when he was saved. He couldn't share any scripture uh, or idea about how he would lead someone else to saving faith in Jesus. And uh, then... He admitted to uh, having an alcohol problem. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't drink. It says you shouldn't be drunk. And he admitted in front of an ordination council to being drunk to excess more times in a year than he could remember. All right. Some of the dear godly deacons from the church down the road were very concerned that he had this problem with alcohol that he admitted to us. And they were going back and forth about this for a while. And I finally literally did this in the meeting. I'm the youngest guy in the meeting, okay? I'm like 30 years old, and these are men that are old enough to be my grandfather and father, and I'm trying to be respectful, but they were just going off on this alcohol thing. And I said, fellas, please, time out, time out. 
Our problem is not that this deacon candidate drinks alcohol. Our problem is that this deacon candidate drinks alcohol because he's probably not saved and he should not be a deacon candidate. Oh, so now what do we do? They called us here for a deacon ordination council. They expect us to go to the other room and lay hands on the guy and then me to preach a special sermon about the role of deacons in leading the church. And we got a guy that's not worthy for us to lay hands on. Brother Joe, the pastor, was a little bit embarrassed. He thought that he knew the man better than this, but we tried to be nice to Brother Joe, and we went into the church and told him, candidate's not ready yet. We're going to have him work with Brother Joe for a couple more months. And uh, then I thankfully had a different sermon in my Bible that I could preach. And um, we still had cake. <laughs> And, and punch. <laughs> I think the part that said congratulations on your ordination, they just kind of wiped that off or something. <laughs> the good news is, with Brother Joe's hard work and the Holy Spirit and the investment of some of those dear deacons from that church down the road who were concerned about this other guy, that uh, that church eventually got deacons, and that church is open and doing well even today. But I share you that story just to say, we've got to be careful. That story cemented in my mind that I will never participate in an ordination ceremony in which the laying on of hands is a slam dunk at the end of the examination. Never. I lead our church that if we're examining a man to be a pastor or examining a man to be a deacon, we set that time and we grill them as hard as we need to grill them theologically and on their faith and practice and all those sort of things. And we tease them that it's going to be really hard. It's maybe not as hard as they're fearful about. And then if we feel like that man is ready, we schedule a date for the laying on of hands. Or it may be that we say that man needs to work on this or that man needs to work on this. And we set a period of time with some specific requirements and someone to mentor him and someone to walk alongside him so that we do not ordain somebody too quickly and thereby participate in his sin. Friends, it's in God's Word because it's serious business and we're to pay attention to it. So your answer to that question is that we can ordain too quickly. Have you ever seen the um, Disney movie Up? You know, the grumpy guy, Mr. Fredrickson, and, and uh, Russell, the cute little Boy Scout guy that needs to get his badges and he needs to assist the elderly. And they go on this grand adventure. Well, there's dogs in this movie. It's a cartoon movie. But anytime somebody mentions what word? Everybody say it together. And the dogs just stop for like three seconds. And they're, they're all just looking for a squirrel, right? Years ago, we were at Disney World, and there is Doug, and there is Russell, you know, the dressed-up characters. And those of us taking pictures of the children and the costume characters all said, Squirrel! And they all went... I should have showed you that picture. It would be much funnier. But... Since that time, anytime there's like something that leaves the main train of thought and goes off a different way, I want to say, squirrel! And that's what you get here in verse 23. 
I don't even have it on your sermon outline, but we've got to acknowledge it. Look at what it says there. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. It's like Paul in the middle of writing about how to handle pastors in the church said, Oh, I almost forgot to tell Timothy. I've heard he had a sick stomach and he needs to drink wine instead of just water since the water sometimes has bugs in it, but the wine, because it's fermented, will actually be better for his stomach and so on and so forth. So I'm going to write that in right here. Some of your Bibles even have that in parentheses, not because it's not in the original. In the original manuscripts, we don't have those, but in the oldest manuscripts we have, it's in there. So Paul put it there, but I'm like, how do I preach this one? I thought, squirrel. (laughs) So there you go. That's your squirrel statement. Notice again, it doesn't say drinking alcohol is wrong. It just says, as a matter of fact, it says sometimes you should if you have issues. But let's get back to our main flow of our text. And your fourth question is how do we discern the character of others? How do we discern the character of others? And Richard will put that one up there. And it gets us to verses 24 and 25. It says, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those who are not cannot be hidden. Now, this sounds to me like the Apostle Paul had done some reading in Proverbs. I mean, if you've read Proverbs, right, you've got these pithy little sayings that it's one way, then it's the other way. It talks about the front side of the coin and the back side of the coin or something like that. And so he's doing the same thing here. But remember, he was trained as a rabbi. And this guy, that Jewish heritage is coming out in him in the way that he puts these two things out here. The sins of Sodom are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. In other words, you can see that they are sinning. The sins of others trail behind them. For instance, let's say in a church family, a young lady who's not married yet becomes pregnant. That sin, within a few months' time, becomes obvious, doesn't it? Let's say that in the same church family, there's a young man that is having all sorts of sinful issues, yet they don't show on the outside. Is one worse than the other? Sin is sin. Some are obvious, some are not obvious, but sin is serious business. And what Paul is getting at here is just a reminder in a poetic sort of way in reference to ordaining pastors, not too quickly, and knowing the, judging the character of pastors, because even pastors sin and pastors are accused of things like that, that we need to know that not all sin is evident. And we need to be discerning in how we handle it. Look at what it says in verse 25. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those are not cannot be hidden. Hmm. Some good deeds are right out there. You can see it. Other good deeds, for whatever reason, we don't want them publicized, or it was in our mind to publicize them or not publicize them. We just went about it and did it. But what he's alluding to there cannot be hidden is that God is Holy Spirit knows. Character isn't always evident, is what Paul is getting at. Therefore, we need one another. More than that, we need God's Word as our guide. And we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate for us to carefully consider the character of others, particularly those who will be church leaders in the role of pastor. 
So what do we learn from this point? That sin is sin, and good is good, seen or not. Sin is sin, it's wrong. Good deeds are good deeds, they're righteous, whether they're seen or not. And you've got one final question with two answers for it. And that's what do we learn today? When we look at this passage of Scripture that on the outset is like, oh man, why do we have to preach about this? Well, because it's important stuff to us and God wanted us as a church to know how to handle it and God wanted me as a pastor to be able to break it down to you and you know how to respond to me based on this Scripture. The first thing you learn there is that the church is responsible for its pastors. The church is responsible for its pastors. Now, that's not to say the pastor is not responsible for himself. Scripture is quite clear that the pastor is responsible for his own character and his own behavior, as are every one of you. Amen? That all of us one day will stand before God in judgment for our deeds, our thoughts, our actions, our words, all those things will come before God at the judgment seat. And all of us are responsible for our actions. But what this scripture teaches us, that the church bears a special responsibility for its pastors, both in caring for and providing for its pastors, and in judging Uh, any accusation against its pastors, and in choosing potential new pastors and their character. That the church bears responsibility in that. And friends, that's why we need to talk about a passage of Scripture like this. So that you know, and I know, that God takes the relationship we have very seriously. He knows that because the role He's put me in, and there's sin given me for you and you for me, that there's great risk of hurt there if there's sin involved in that relationship. And so God takes it so seriously that he had Paul write it to Timothy for the church at Ephesus and preserve it for Southview Baptist Church today. Amen. The church is responsible for its pastors. The second thing we learn today, to know others well, We must know Jesus best. I realize that's kind of cliche saying. I went through various iterations of that, but I wanted something that you can remember, right? To know others well, we must know Jesus best. You're like, where's that in the Scripture? It's implied in there. It's implied that in order to make the right kind of judgment about pastors, whether you're entertaining an accusation against them or whether you're laying on hands of new ones, and then again there in verses 24 and 25, the last two verses about sin that is seen and not seen and good that is seen and not seen, those sort of things. In order to discern the character of others, you need to have the character of Christ within you. How do you get the character of Christ within you? Every day, you've got to engage God's Word. Hear it. Read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Study it. Think about it. Write about it. Every day. There's no excuse for us in our day and time to say, I don't have time to engage Scripture you got the Bible app on your phone. You know it'll read it to you. That little speaker icon there, you just push that. You can listen to it while you're driving. You can listen to it while you're walking your dog. You can listen to it while you're vacuuming. If you turn it up loud enough, you can read it. You can memorize it. 
Man, there's like a thousand and one Christian ministries that will send you a daily devotional to your email inbox or text it to you that has a scripture and some thoughts and questions to apply it and some uh, prayer or something like that. There's no reason we shouldn't be engaging scripture in our day and time other than the fact that we choose not to. You get to know God. You get to know Jesus by scripture, but also through prayer. Now, the cool thing about prayer is you can pray anytime. You can pray while you're talking because your mind works faster than your lips can go. Most of us, anyhow. You can pray while you're driving down the road. You can pray while vacuuming and you don't have to pray loud unless you're praying out loud. But there should be some time in your life that you set aside for focused prayer with no distraction. Maybe you need a prayer closet. Maybe you need somewhere where there's nothing that's going to keep you from focusing on God's Word. And as you pray with maybe a journal or a notebook in hand to write down prayer requests, to write down thoughts and answers, as you get to know God well, in order that He might help you know others well. How much better would it make your life if you could discern others better? That's not the only reason you'd want to pursue a continuing and growing love relationship with Jesus, but it's certainly a positive outcome. Let's pray together, church. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that by your spirit, and when we consider carefully, that every passage of your word has something to teach us about who we are, who we should be, how we should behave. And so, Father, as we've opened this passage today and considered it together, and Your Spirit has been present among us to teach us, I know each and every one of us is going to have a different lesson we've learned, maybe many, different recollections or thoughts, maybe even questions based on this. I pray that by your Spirit, you help answer them for us. Father, we pray for our church that you continue to guide us in your love, that we would choose grace with one another, and that we would navigate all that is ahead of us in our individual lives and as our lives as a church family, following Jesus first, not what comes natural or easy for us. So God, we pray that if there's any person here today who maybe today's the day they need to unite with this church family, that they'd walk down the aisle and they'd say, yeah, this is the place God has called me to put my life or my family's life, that we might join together and serve and grow in this place. And Father, maybe there's those that have never trusted Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and they need to make that decision today. And make it public and share it with all of us. Would they do that today? And certainly, Father, there are those of us that are members of this church that we have something we need to pray about at this altar. Visit with somebody. Ask their forgiveness or confess. Whatever it is, may we obey as we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.